Well, good morning. My name is Slim. Hi. Uh, that is not my, my given name. My mom here gave me the other name, Ryan. Uh, but only her and my wife call me that. Um, so if you call me Ryan, I'll answer, but it's kind of weird. Um, we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> um, as, as John said, uh, I was a student uh, with him uh, at this university you may have heard of, Texas A&M. There you go. Uh, class of 06. So I have my credentials. If you're not an Aggie and you're like, this is a cult, I get it, but you're in the heart of the beast right here, and it's fun for us to come back to it. Um, so very, very thankful to be back here. Um, and I'm just curious, before we get into the sermon, um, since my time at, at, at RUF, at the college ministry that John led, uh, I felt like at least once a month, and I was sporadic in my attendance, at least once a month, there was a reference to the Princess Bride. Is that still true today? I see, it seems like a collective, yeah. <laughs> okay, it's okay, we all have our things. We all have our uh, things, mine's Hamilton uh, and something, you know, Marvel or whatnot, but um, glad you've stayed the same. <laughs> but I don't want to talk about Princess Bride. Uh, I want to talk about a guy named Larry Walters. Larry Walters uh, was a man from California who went to an Army and Navy surplus store and bought himself 75 used weather balloons. There's a lot of stuff in the news about balloons in the skies. Uh, this is a little bit, I think this was in the early 90s. Uh, Larry Walters went and bought 75 used weather balloons. He inflated them all um, and then attached them to his lawn chair strapped the lawn chair into his truck uh, and drove out into a field where his friends um, loaded him up into this chair and cut the rope, and off he went. <laughs> Larry Walters just went floating into the sky. <laughs> and not just somewhat into the sky. Um, there's documents about this. Um, about two and a half hours later, after cutting the rope and him floating up upwards, the Los Angeles International Airport reported seeing a UFO, an unidentified flying object, uh, in their way. And uh, the, the pilot of the 737 who spotted Larry Walters um, has this transcribed from what, they, what he saw. He said, well, it, I, I see what looks like a, a perfectly still man sitting in a... Is that right? Is, is that a lawn chair? <laughs> and so, from here on out, this man's name has been known as Lawn Chair Larry. There he is. Just, just floating away. <laughs> and so, he was getting a little nervous of being hit by planes <laughs> in the Los Angeles area. And so, he did what any normal person would do. is He took out his pellet gun that, of course, he brought and he shot a few balloons so that he would have a slow descent. Not fast, but a slow descent down. And in that slow descent down, he didn't know what else to do except take out his six-pack of beer, drink it all, <laughs> and passes out. <laughs> and so he wakes up, attached, the, the, the balloons got caught in some um, uh, power lines, and then the, the, uh, the Navy had to come out, or who was it, the, 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 the guard there, had to come out and get him out of that. So his story goes, goes, goes viral, uh, you know, in the 90s, what's that? You know, that, that? That takes a lot to go viral then, right? <laughs> his story goes out, and all these people interviewing him on, on TV and things like that, and they're asking him, like, hey, were you scared? 
of course. Would you ever do it again? No. So he's learned. That's good. Um, but the, the most important question they asked him was, why did you do it? <laughs> why did you go up and do something like that? And his answer to them was, I just got bored of sitting around all the time. <laughs> While he's sitting around, <laughs> floating away. Now, I'm worried that many of us are just tired of sitting around. I think many of us are bored in church, and we might be afflicted with the nagging sense that, that we ought to be doing something, something more, that we, that we are a part of a, a meaningful mission that we're supposed to be part of. And, and I think the American church in particular has not done a great job of retelling the story of a God who is a sending God, who sends us out, Right? And so today I chose the book of Acts, Acts 1, uh, because I think the book itself exists in the New Testament for the one purpose, many, but one purpose is to keep the church from just coasting to a standstill at some point, where all we do is just focus on, on, on and, and move into maintenance mode. And, and every church has that tendency to just move into maintenance mode, even churches as young as Mercy Hill to just focus and look inward and forget that we are sent to this work, that this isn't a spectator sport, this is an all-hands-on-deck, this is Pokemon Go. Everyone can do it. You can walk around and go and play this game. <laughs> Everyone can jump in, and the book of Acts is called Acts because the gospel actually pushes you to act and to do something, to actually live differently. And now Acts has, begins as a follow-up to Luke's gospel, as, as, as John already said. Luke is this physician, and he's, he begins in verse 1. He says, oh, Theophilus. We don't know who he is. He's, he's a Roman governor. He's, he, he is a, he's a, an official. Um, and he's, he's trying to tell you, this is the second half of what I was trying to tell you about Jesus. And the second half, the sequel, is better than the first, which sounds wild since the first is the gospel of Luke. And it was also wild, because as all of us know, it's really hard for sequels to be better than the original, unless you're Terminator 2, unless you're the Dark Knight, unless you're Daddy Daycare 2, um, all great sequels, right? Um, and Acts is the sequel to the life of Jesus. And then right at the beginning, the disciples are getting a friendly rebuke from the angels, which feels a little harsh from these angels. Verse 11 says, why are you just standing here looking into the sky? Just remember who these disciples were. They, they've been walking with Jesus for years now, and their best friend just floats away. And they're, they're like, oh my word. Watching him go away, feeling that sense of we're alone. And the angels come alongside like, what are you doing? Maybe a little, little compassion, angels. Maybe slow your, slow your rope there, right? And so Jesus just left the ascension of what, this is what this is. This is called the ascension of Jesus. Now, we, we in the church have three major holidays, right? We have the, the incarnation, Christmas. We have his death, Good Friday. And we have his resurrection at Easter. But we typically don't really talk about the ascension, and it's not really one you can buy a, a Hallmark card for. Um, as, but I would say it's as crucial as these other holidays. But for them, for the disciples then, the ascension felt like the absence of Christ. That Christ went away. 
that we get less of Jesus at the ascension. They felt abandoned. You ever felt abandoned by God? They felt abandoned by God. But the ascension is not the absence of Jesus, but it is actually his presence everywhere. Because the ascension of Christ is that spark that, that, that lights the fire. It's that first domino that knocks over the, the, the domino wall, right? It is the first one that, that, that it makes everything explode. It's what allows Christ to be king, not just in Jerusalem, but everywhere to the ends of the earth. That's what the ascension is. When Jesus goes up, the Holy Spirit comes down. Verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It is the great trade-off of what hap- is what happens here. When Jesus goes up to reign from heaven, the Holy Spirit comes down and unleashes the power of Christ in you. This means that unless you are filled with the glorious joy of Jesus and be moved to this activity, the doctrine of the ascension hasn't truly taken root. That if many times we are just caught just staring and wondering. But that's not what the, the doctrine of the ascension is supposed to do. It's supposed to move us. Because what it, ha- what it tells us is that you will receive power, right? It says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. The word for power there is the, the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite. So you will receive dynamite. <laughs> you will receive that type of power that is in you, that Christ's power is now unleashing through you. And who is the you? That's the question we want to ask many times. Who is, is that just for the disciples? That he, that's who Jesus was originally speaking to, absolutely. But that's too limited view of who, the, who this, this passage is for. Who Jesus is talking to right here is very clear because the whole book of Acts is a, is, a, is a whole book about the story of the church exploding into all these different regions. And so the you is the church. It starts locally in Jerusalem, but then it moves outward to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so did you know that when Jesus says this about the ends of the earth, he's actually referring to you and me. That you and I are the ends of the earth that Jesus is referring to now. Where they were at, we were way over here, are the ends of the earth in their minds. The same Holy Spirit that is given to the disciples is given to you and me. And so Mercy Hill is a continuation of the work of the disciples way back in the book of Acts. But today, when I say the word church, what's your, what's your, what's your feel? I feel like most of society, I don't know how y'all feel, I'm not, I'm not with you guys right now, but I think most of society, when they hear the word church, there's kind of an allergic reaction to it, right? Like, oh, church, right? <laughs> like, we almost have, the word, the word for church in the Greek is ekklesia, and we almost have a, an ekklesia eczema, right? We, we have this, this, this aversion, something about church that we want to push against, because there's some real, there's some real problems in the church, There's some real problems with organized religion, as we can see right now. For many, the church is an unsafe place. There are scandals at leadership levels. There are churches trying to be known for their culture war stance. There is a hashtag called hashtag church hurt that is a very real thing. There's been abuse, neglect, cover-ups. And sociologists who study spirituality 
in America say that two things are true in regards to American spiritual lives. One, the first, spiritual interest is at an all-time high right now in our, in our country. And yet, number two, there is a decided move away from institutional religion. And so churches are closing faster and faster and faster in America. That's just facts. There's actually a little bit of a rise in some multicultural spaces. But even then, even there, there is a difficulty because many people in our day love the concept of a multicultural church, which we want to be a part of, our, our church in Waco is. And yet, there's an article in The Atlantic that shows that even people who live in a progressive multicultural neighborhood, they end up hanging out with people who look just like them. Because it's very simple. We prefer self. We prefer me. We prefer the things that we like, what we know, what we think is normal. And if the church is just a gathering, a bunch of like-minded individuals who all think the same, look the same, talk the same, live in the same neighborhoods, um, what is that actually? That's not a church, that's a country club. Right? Like, there's nothing magical about gathering a bunch of people who, who like the same things. Like, you can get that at a concert. Be like, oh, yeah, well, you like Coldplay? Cool, me too. There's nothing magical about that. What's magical is when you see people who should have nothing in common breaking bread. That's when you know the power of Christ is at work. And the only way that happens is if Christ does a miraculous work. In Ephesians, which is in, in this, the city of Ephesus. This is Asia. The church is moving out, as, as, as Jesus said it would. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul says, he himself, referring to Jesus, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And so Christ has torn down this dividing wall of hostility. Outside of Christ, there was beef between you and God, Right? There, there was hostility. There was a war between you and God, and we know who's going to win that war because we have this thing called sin. The things that you've done, the things that you've not done have put a war between you and your creator. And verse 13, one verse in front of this, says that you who once were far away, once were far off, but because of Jesus, because Jesus, the wrath quencher, the shame killer, the guilt eraser. He quenched and pulled that anger that God had towards you and pulled it onto himself. And he made peace between you and God and brought you near. And if we can just get a picture of that, if we can just get a picture of what we've been spared from, then what we've been saved from, and then how dare we ever look at someone else and look down at someone, realizing what we deserve. And so Paul's making the point both vertically what we've been saved from, but also what we, what, the way we relate to one another horizontally. Because when he talks about a, 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 a wall being torn down, there was a literal wall in Jerusalem. There was a literal wall in, in the, the temple of Jerusalem, about 10 feet high. And do you know what it said on it? It said this, any Gentile entering beyond this wall will have only himself or herself to blame for their ensuing death. That's going to be on the outside sign here. Uh, next week at Mercy Hill. <laughs> it, it's so inviting. It's such a seeker-sensitive church here, right? There was a wall that separated the good from the bad, the clean from the unclean, the right kind of people from the wrong kind of people. 
And that wall still exists today, right? We don't have that, the, the, the literal wall, but we have those walls that we say, these people are the wrong kind of people. We'll keep them out. Who is that for you? Who is that we keep out and say, you're not, you're not really one of us? Is it because of the people where they live, where they, where they come from? Like, where do we intentionally put ourselves? Who do we actually invite over to our dinner table? You can say, oh, I, I would never, you know, I would never judge someone in that way. We all do. Absolutely, we all do. Maybe it's around money. Maybe you're not, maybe you're not comfortable with, with people who don't have as much. Maybe you're comfortable with people who have too much. Maybe it's around someone politically, and you think, how can they ever vote that way? They must, they're, they're idiots, or maybe they're even evil. What are the wrong kind of people for you? I would say the thing about the churches, the thing that, that actually should be our marker, is that the church tears down walls. That's what we should be known for. Outside of Christ, there is only one category of sinners when it, came, when it comes to God, we are all on the outside of the wall. There are no good people or bad people. There's only dead, sin-corrupted rebels. And Jesus' blood has cleansed us and brought us all back to life. And so in Jesus, there's only one kind of sinner, and that's dead. There's only one kind of believer, and that's alive in Christ, united to Christ, and now adopted into the family, and now heir to the whole kingdom. That's it. And throughout the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, the picture of the New Testament church just gets progressively more and more intimate. What, what, it, what, it, what it begins as is you have, to, you have to go across a country to reach someone. Then it goes into, you, you can come into my family, we talked about as being brothers and sisters, but then it's, we are literally built on top of one another is the image we get here. The imagery of the New Testament in Christianity is this, your oceans apart, then your miles apart, then your feet apart, because we're now sharing the same bedroom as brothers and sisters in Christ, but then it gives us the imagery of being spiritual bricks to the temple of Christ, to where we are now being built on top of one another. And the only thing that separates a brick from another brick is the concrete that binds it. That's the picture of the, of the church that we are supposed to embody that we are in it together. We are so tightly bound that there's nothing separating us except what Jesus is now binding us together. And so though I'm in the heathen land of Waco, we, we pray for it, we understand, we are in it together. And no matter whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian, you're Methodist, you're, you're non-denominational, or a myriad of other denominations, there's thousands of them, there is nothing separating us. So we can and should partner together and get our hands dirty with anyone who says that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Amen? And so I know the church is rough. I get it. <laughs> and the more you're in it, you see more of it. And yet, Christ didn't get up and go up for you to give up. Let me say that again. Christ didn't get up and go up for you to give up. Like, Christ says the church is, our, is his plan A, B, and C for how he's going to reach the nations. This is, this, God is working through the church. How? Well, let me give you four pictures of the church, how I think we, we think about the church. The first picture I'll give you is the canoe. 
A canoe, that just looks like such a serene, beautiful spot, right? Wouldn't you all want to be on a canoe? A canoe is nice. It is beautiful, but it carries one person. Maybe two, but we'll just go for one right now. <laughs> a canoe is great, but in a time of war, not so helpful. You don't really win too many wars on a canoe. But let's take the war imagery out. Sometimes that's too much in Christianity. Let's just say, what if, a, what if you're in a storm and a wave comes? That's when we realize that the canoe is not enough because the church, I, I need you. I need my brothers and sisters to help me when I fall, to come alongside me, to spur me, to challenge me, to call me out when I sin. Like, we can't go it alone. This is, this, this is yes, we want to say this is for everyone, this is Pokemon Go, but that's too individualistic. We got to do this together. The canoe is, is, is too, too much of a loner religion. And so please don't go the canoe route. The next boat I'll give you is the cruise ship. The cruise ship church is focused on all kinds of services for all of its members. There's something for everybody. We got a buffet, we got a pool, we got batting cages. It can get out of hand. You guys have some of that out here, right? I would assume. Uh, <laughs> now, I joke, but I think every church struggles with living that way. Like, every church struggles with trying to balance, focusing on meeting the needs of our congregation or focusing on being outward and trying to reach the community. And I just would say, I don't think you can create that dichotomy and say, let's just solely focus on inward versus outward. And so I think that's not a great image. Um, and so as juxtaposed to the cruise ship, many churches then go, you know what we need to do? Is we need a battleship. We need to fight the world, the, the, the world and all of its evils. And so let's storm hell's gates and let's, let's build this culture war. And, and the problem in this church is, is it, yes, it's not just seeing the church as in opposition to the world because that's the only way we can see ourselves. The, the problem with this church is the role of the church members ends up being to just pay the staff and the leaders to find the targets, to fire the guns as we all just gather and watch them do the work. The church watches the professionals do the work. I don't think that's a helpful image of the church either. I don't think that's what the New Testament tells us. The last image of the church I'll give you is an aircraft carrier. Anyone ever been on an aircraft carrier? Wow, we got someone. Yeah, couple here. Wonderful, wonderful. Y'all tell me if I'm saying it right. Aircraft carriers equip these planes to carry the battle elsewhere. The goal is to not have the battle on the aircraft carrier, I would assume, right? And that, to me, is the biblical picture of the church. That Paul says in Ephesians 4.12, he says, our role as a church is to equip the saints for the works of ministry. And so it's to equip you to bring the fight as doctors, as lawyers, as, as professors and teachers and social workers and parents and foster parents and whoever, because as leaders, our job is not to gather you and amaze you, our job is to help you discover the power of the Holy Spirit that is inside of you and unleash you on the world. And so when, when the church stops hoarding all of the mission and unleashes you, the church cannot be stopped. With all of its flaws, I don't believe the church can be stopped. You are unstoppable. And then we will truly reach the ends of the world. And why am I so confident in the invincibility of the church? Because we realize that death couldn't even stop our God, right? Death couldn't even stop Jesus. He blew open that tomb, and if you saw what he did to the devil when he came after him, what's he going to do when the devil comes after his bride? Woo. 
<laughs> right? Jesus is going to fight for you. He's going to go after you. And when we see grace and mercy in such tangible ways, like we realize how invincible grace and mercy are. When you see it on display, you, you can't help but love it. Let me, let me end with this picture of grace. There's this great story by a pastor named uh, Tony Campolo. He was out late one night in, in, in Hawaii. He, was, he went to just a dive of a restaurant, a diner. It's one of those places that you didn't even want to pick up the menu because it was just so grimy. You're like, oh gosh, something might crawl out of it. <laughs> and so he's like, hmm, I'll just do a coffee and a donut. That looks semi-clean right now. So that's what he orders. And this is at 3.30 in the morning at this dive of a restaurant, this diner in Hawaii. And it's the, the, the place is just a ghost land. It's just him and the, the, the guy working behind the counter. His name is Harry, the guy behind the counter. And to his uh, dismay, to Tony's dismay, in walks eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. Uh, and since it's basically a ghost town, he can hear everything that's being said uh, by, by these women. Uh, and so their, their voices just took over the place. And at, at one point, he hears one of them say, what do you want me to do, buy you a birthday cake? And the other said, no, I was just telling you it was my birthday. Why do you have to be so mean? I've never had a birthday party in my life. Why should I have one now? And it was at this point that Tony said, I want to do something. And so once the, the ladies left, he talked to Harry, the guy behind the, the counter, and said, do these women come in here every, every night? He's like, oh, every single night, on, on the dot, 3.30. It's like, I, I want to do something about that. I heard, overheard one of them saying that, that her birthday is tomorrow. What do you say you and me do something about that? What if, what if, what if I went and I, 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 I got a bunch of decorations and we came back here and we just threw her a little birthday party? I'll even get her a cake. And the guy behind the counter said, no, 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 I got the cake. You get everything else. So Tony goes home. He comes back the next day at 2.30 to, to decorate this grimy diner. And he goes from floor to ceiling with all the decorations, with all the streamers and the balloons and the happy birthday. Realize this woman's name is Agnes. Happy birthday, Agnes. Everywhere. So um, it's getting closer to time, and he realizes one of the cooks in the, in the kitchen uh, spread the word. So now the place is now packed. This, this grimy little diner is now packed with a room full of prostitutes to celebrate this Agnes. And so she walks in, and everyone's like, Happy birthday! And she's just shocked. She's shaking. And she almost stumbles, and so someone has to grab her to keep her from stand to keep her to stand. And then they all sing "Happy Birthday" to Agnes. They sing to her, and then Harry brings out the cake with the candles and puts it in front of her, and she's just in shock, staring at it. And they say, "Go, go ahead, blow out the candles." And so she blows them out, and then Harry comes and brings her a knife and says, "Go ahead, you can cut it. You can get your first piece." And she said. Can I, just, can I just look at it for a little bit? And this whole diner is just like, whatever you want. I mean, you, it's your cake. You I mean, you can keep it. You can take it home if, if, that's, if that's what you want to do. And Agnes goes, really? I only live right around the corner. Can, can I do that? And they're like, sure. She's just so shocked that someone would see her 
in her line of work and who she is to celebrate her. And so she, she goes home, and this diner is just dead silent. Like, what do we do? And so then Tony, the pastor, stands up and he says, hey, can we pray for Agnes? And so everyone bow your head. And so in a diner full of prostitutes, they're all now praying for this woman. And they finish praying, and Harry goes, Tony, you didn't, you didn't tell me you're a preacher. And he's like, where do, you, where do you go to church? And one of the greatest lines ever. Tony says, I'm a part of a church that throws parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry goes, no, you're not. There is no church like that. If there was, I would join it. Because we all want to be a part of a church like that, right? Who shows true mercy and true grace to anyone and everyone. That's what we want to be a part of. That's what we want shown to us. That's what the church in the world is longing for. And so absolutely you have an invincible power of Christ inside of you. That's the kind of church Jesus came to create. You are invincible when you put on grace and, and display it like that. The sending church ignited by the ascension of Christ is carrying with it this, this otherworldly power to show grace and mercy that the world doesn't know about and to invite them into something more beautiful and more dynamic for anyone. I pray that Mercy Hill can be that church. So as you go out into your communities, wherever it is, to the person who you think is on the outside of you, let alone the church, that's who we are called to show that grace and mercy to, wherever you may go.